0: Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So as I was saying, this is a bit out of my comfort comfort zone this morning. I've made a decision... In any pastoral ministry that I have, to just try to be a faithful expositor, which means, uh, from my viewpoint, we're going to take the passages of a text of scripture and just work through it and dealing with what text is next. But for these next three weeks, they're going to be a little different. We're going to be looking at some different texts hopefully still letting the Word of God do its work and speaking, but in, instead more topical, focusing on one main topic instead of one main passage. And that, pa- that topic this morning is, why, what is the purpose of the church? Why do we have the church, and what is the church to be about? Why church? In a modern age, it's very confused about many things, it is important for us to take time to try to come together and, and figure out our understanding of, of what church really is. Not just that church is important, which I think there's a general idea for many people that they would even confess, sure, church is important, whether I'm there very much or not, church, things like this are important, but not only an understanding of church being important, but an understanding of why Church is important. Not just some nebulous sort of, well, it's, it's the right thing to do, but, but why? I mean, honestly, if you were to be asked the question... Why why church? Why why do we gather? What is the point of this whole thing? And so, I make no claims this morning to be the expert in the field of ecclesiology, which is the fancy word, that I like to use fancy words, of what the, the knowledge of or the study of the church. Ekklesia is the Greek word for gathering, so in your New Testament, when you read the word church, that's usually the word ekklesia, So ecclesia, ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so why the church? I don't know why I shared that with you, but there you go. That was just some pointless knowledge. This is ecclesiology. Why the church? Why do we study the church? And so my main idea for this series I've got on the screen, our main idea for this series is that the church is a gathering that seeks first God's glorification, Secondly, the people's sanctification, and thirdly, gospel saturation. The church exists for God's glorification, for the people's sanctification, we'll say satisfaction and sanctification, but that's next week. The church exists for God's glorification, the people's sanctification, and for gospel saturation. That's kind of the main idea. Three things, hopefully everyone who's got a head on their shoulders can think on these three things. The church exists, glorification, sanctification, saturation. Trying to boil this down as easy as we can. The church exists for God's glorification, for the people's sanctification, satisfaction, sanctification, And for gospel saturation. This is the statement that we'll be using over the next few weeks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining what the church is, but I will take a few minutes to just discuss what a church is. The scripture gives us a pretty clear declaration that the church is. The church is. It does exist. So keep your Bibles handy. Hopefully you can flip around and look some with me this morning. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you've got a pew Bible, this is page 1162 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. Now this has got a lot of loaded language, but we're looking at just one simple thing this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 27 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, there's a ton of fun stuff in that. That's not the point of our topic this morning. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the point that we bring up this text this morning is just just basic confessed reality that Christ has a church. The church does exist. It is a one universal, invisible, we would say, one reality, a church that is Christ. There is knowledge given to us that Jesus has this group of people that are His, that are called the church. This is the invisible church. So this is one broad, giant group of people known as Christ's church. But then you go to places like 1 Corinthians, to start off the book of 1 Corinthians. And you could go to 1 Corinthians, you could go to the beginning of... um, of uh, 2 Corinthians, you go to the beginning of Galatians, the beginning of 1st or 2 Thessalonians, but just on page 1131, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, verse 1 Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So there is a, a local expression that they're saying this is the church of God. Not just this general broad church of God that is Christ's, but the church of God that is in Corinth. And like I said, you can go to Galatians, speaking of the church that is in Galatia, the church that is in Thessalonica. There are these places that is referred to not just the, the broad category of Christ's church, which is the universal invisible church, but there also is this understanding of the visible church, that Christ's church does exist in visible a local representations that there's these two ways to think about the church. You may not think about this, but every month we confess a statement about the church. Every month as a corporate body, we have a statement we make about the church. It's in the Apostles' Creed, right? I didn't write it down, but let's see if I can think of it. We believe, oh, I did write it down. We believe in, let's see if you know it, we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church you ever said that before if you've been here on the first sunday of the month you said that we believe in one holy catholic now that's not a big c roman catholic that catholic word means universal means that actually catholic is a great term it just means broad universal we believe in the one holy universal and apostolic church So, this has been confessed since the times of the apostles. It's reality the church is one. There is one body that is Christ. It is holy, meaning it is separated unto Christ. It is universal in that it spans all times as it is Christ's one holy, separated, universal, and apostolic church, meaning not that it is uh, passed down through Peter as the chief apostle, which is what Roman Catholicism would teach you, but that it is off of the teaching of the apostles, what the apostles taught that is build the church. the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and the apostles so that 's been the general understanding of the church, but but now what we 're going to work on i mean, we was supposed to get through this quickly, what is the church is two historic definitions of this church is the church is this the church is the gathering of christians who have a right understanding of god's word and right administration of the ordinances okay so that's a pretty official definition that people say in all different ways but it boils down to these two things the church is the gathering of christians underneath the right teaching of god's word and administering the the proper ordinances, the right administration of the ordinances. It's extremely basic, but it's a historic definition, the the marks of a true church. Under the teaching, under the idea of, of right teaching of God's word, they have an understanding of the gospel. Their anthropology of man as a sinner, condemned by God who needs the rescue of Jesus Christ, who's come to earth, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, resurrected from the grave, so that everyone who repents and trusts in Christ would have everlasting life, a right understanding of that gospel, a right understanding of what makes up the church. This is what is meant by where you have that right understanding of justification, also a right understanding of sanctification, what it means that now you are justified, how you walk in a way that is worthy of the, of the gospel which has called you, to live a life worthy of the manner of which you've been called, having a right understanding of the scripture, justification, sanctification, and then right ordinances. There are two ordinances recognized in the church. They are baptism and communion. We do communion every week here, and baptism upon those who have professed faith in Christ. So we have... These ordinances, the clear teaching, everywhere you find those two things, you've likely found a church. So it doesn't the church is not dependent upon this building. We're glad we have it. It's got good heat. Take my jacket off here, pretty soon. So when it's cold, we've got we've got a great facility. But this does not make the church. The building does not make the church. If we all decided to go sit out on the courthouse lawn, um, keeping our coats on. That if we all decided to meet at my house or wherever we decided to meet, and there was the proper teaching of God's word. Where the the administration of the sacraments was had, there you have a church. So this is the basic definition. This is what the church is. But our series this morning is not what the church is. What is the church for? So if that's what it is, great. But why? Why church? Why have the church? What should the church be about now? And because there we find some interesting answers. If you went and polled everyone what a church should be doing, why the church should exist, what should the church be about? You would get a lot of interesting answers. The church exists for unbelievers so that they have a place to come and hear the gospel. Some say the church is for Christians, that they would come and, and, and get to be very fresh in the gospel. Some would say the, place, the church exists so that you have a place to come and serve, that you, have, you should be as a Christian serving, and so the church gives you a place to serve. But if we're going to boil all of them down and draw out, those, those maybe are all fine byproducts of what the church is. But they are not the idea, the main goal of what church is for. The people are not the center of the church. God is. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. The church exists primarily not for the people of God, but for the glory of God. And that's an important thing to remember, to glorify God first and foremost. We live in a time that finds that message offensive. What do you mean it's not for me? (laughs) If it's not for me, then why do I want anything to do with it? Everything in our culture today must revolve around ourselves to have any value. If it has nothing to do with me... I don't care about it. I don't care about your social project. If it's not going to benefit me, I don't care. We think everything that is of value must make much of us. And when it comes to churches, often choosing the one that you want to go to, the choice is often made by some sort of subjective feeling. Subjective feeling. How does it make me feel? Do I like the music there? That guy that picks up the guitar occasionally—I don't really like that. You know what I mean? And so, how do you subjectively decide? Or they, instead of doing the guitar all the time, they sing traditional hymns, or they take communion every week. And honestly, I'd rather just get out and let's do communion once a quarter. And and all of these decisions about you know the guy up front—he talks too fast, or he talks too long, or he's too boring, or he's too high energy. You know, whatever you've got these subjective, all of those ideas reveal that you think church is first and foremost about you, and it isn't. Church is first and foremost about the glory of God. The question that must be asked when you're looking for a church, I'm still serving here as the interim pastor, technically. And so when you're looking for who's next, those of you who stick around here longer than me, you're looking for what's next. The question you should be asking is not, is of first importance, does this and is the church going to glorify God? That is of first importance. Your desire, your question is going to be asked, is God glorified when we gather together? If that is your desire, then all these personal preferences take a back seat. Because you see that Christ is being honored so if I hate guitar or if I hate traditional hymns, if I hate regular communion or I hate we don't do this thing and I want it to or the reading is whatever it would be, those things all get to fade away because you ask this question. What is most important is Christ being honored goes back to our understanding of the church as a gathering of God's people throughout the ages. When we talk about we are part of one church, the invisible church, that is Christ's church. We are part of a multi-millennial gathering of those whose primary objective has been that God is glorified that God would be honored. One of the Reformation slogans that's on the front of your bulletin is Soli Deo Gloria. There's five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Gradia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, Sola Scriptura, and then Soli Deo Gloria. And that's a big fancy term that just means glory to God alone. Soli alone Deo God, uh, Soli Deo Gloria, glorified. So glory to God alone, Soli Deo Gloria, was this resounding voice. We do not exist here on an island. First Christian Church is not its own thing. We are part of a tradition, historic reality. What we do here at First Christian Church cannot primarily be about ourselves or even this community. What we do, if that becomes the driving force, ourselves and this community, if that becomes the driving force, not the once for all faith delivered to the saints, we're charging down a road that takes us away from historic Christianity, which is first and foremost that God would be glorified. To march, to put ourselves at the center is to march away from historic Christian doctrine of what the church is to be for. We exist to glorify God. So, I've been using this word a lot. What does it mean to glorify God? I keep saying it. Church exists for God's glorification. Glorify God. What do we mean when we say glorify? Sometimes when the word glorify is used, it's meant more like the word beautify or to make look pretty, like you you watch a movie and it will um, glorify war. You ever heard that statement that a a movie you watch and it glorifies war and it makes war like this uh, beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing when really war is horrible. I mean, it's it's an awful reality that happens in our world. But they'll say uh, this movie glorifies, it makes it look pretty when it really isn't. Is that what we mean by glorify? When we say glorify God, we're taking something that isn't really pretty and making it look pretty? That's blasphemy. No, no. The answer is no to that. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we mean by glorify. Um, John Piper puts it this way in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, I've got several copies of this book. If you'd like one, I can get it to you. But this book, Don't Waste Your Life, and let me read a quote from here. It says this, What does it mean to glorify God? and it may get dangerous it may get a dangerous twist if we're not careful glorify is like the word beautify but beautify usually means make something more beautiful than it is improve its beauty That is emphatically not what we mean by glorify in relation to God. God cannot be made more glorious or more beautiful than He is. He cannot be improved. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. That's quoting Acts 17.25. Glorify does not mean add more glory to God. It's more like the word magnify. But even here, we too can go wrong. Magnify has two distinct meanings. In relation to God, one is worship, one is wickedness. So here's the distinctions he's making. You can magnify like a telescope or like a microscope. When you magnify like a microscope, you make something tiny look bigger than it is. A dust mite can look like a monster. Pretending to magnify God like that is wickedness. So you get the imagery here to magnify like a microscope, meaning that God is this tiny thing we're trying to make look bigger than it is. We're magnifying or glorifying the dust mite when really it's just nothing. Or, in contrast, when you magnify like a telescope, back to the quote, when you magnify like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies in the sky are revealed for the billion star giants that they really are. Magnifying God like that is worship. Glorifying God is like magnifying God. It is taking this reality that barely even registers for so many people. It's like this night sky... So many stars out there, you don't even realize they're even there. You're just living along on planet Earth with no realization of who God is. And when we magnify God, it's like forcing a telescope in front of their eyes to see what they think is just this tiny pinprick point of light is actually this giant, beautiful reality. And magnifying God is showing him for what he really is like. This beautiful reality reality of who God is and what he has done we glorify God glorifying God is taking this beautiful reality of who he is and displaying it and displaying it scripture is clear that all that God has done he has done for his own glory he's done this for his praise I have CYF kids in here I got a few they're busy with their books we, uh, we ask At CYF, we ask a few questions. We say, who made you? And they answer, God made me. And then we say, what else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. So this is some catechism we're working on at CYF. We're trying to plant this reality. Everything exists for the glory of God. That's, that's Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Tons of places we could go. Romans 11 uh, verse 36 says it this way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43, another clear Isaiah has a lot of passages, many passages reflecting this reality of the centrality of the glory of God. We'll just look at a couple here. Isaiah 42, verse 8 reads like this. Isaiah 42, 8, 7, 16 in your pew Bible. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, God is, Isaiah is prophesying this message here, and God is speaking. He says, uh, for my daughters, uh, He's going to bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. He's going to bring these people in. Who are they? They are everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You can also look at... uh, Isaiah 48, 9-11, Psalm 86, Revelation 4-11, we could go on. But you could just look at our fighter verse for next week. It says that... uh... Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, I'm getting way too hot up here. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one. Do everything for the glory of God. And if you as an individual are to eat, drink, and do everything for the glory of God, how could it be any different when we gather together but that we do everything for the glory of God? The church exists for God's glorification. Our primary goal is that through our fellowship together, God is shown to be the glorious God that he truly is. That's what we're doing here. When we gather together, we want to put on display for each other, for anyone who would visit, for the watching world, that we say this God is worthy of all of our praise. He's more valuable than anything else in the world. Every decision we make must be sifted and examined through the lens of this question. How does this glorify God? Someone might say, why should we seek to show God as valuable as our first priority? God is God. He's valuable. He doesn't need us to show that he's valuable. If God really is as valuable, why does he need us to show? He doesn't need us to show himself as valuable. And you know what? They're right. God does not need us. Us showing God as valuable does not make God more valuable. It does not make him more valuable. They'd be 100% right to say that. God does not need us to show him as valuable in order for him to be valuable. But we get to the heart of the issue. We seek to show the supreme value of God, not to make him more valuable, but because he is. Because he is. We seek to glorify God and to shout to all, every ear that will hear us of God's immense value and worth because it doesn't make God more valuable. It confesses the reality that God is the most valuable being on the, in reality. In reality, it's the difference between gathering a crew to search after bottles of treasure, and you get there and you're, you're all gathered together, and boy, everyone's you fire them all up. We're going to find something great, and and their bottles just filled with the same air and drinking water you find everywhere. But but you're just trying to fire a crew up to that. That's not how we glorify God. The difference would be gathering a crew to search for bottles that truly have the water of. Everlasting life. That's why we want to, to glorify God, because He truly is worth glorifying. Think of what God has done in creating everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. God has made everything. The God who paints sunrises and sunsets in the way that He does, and He doesn't do it by, by rating His kids' crayon box, Or by finding paints, he takes chemicals and elements and existence and makes sunsets. When we paint, when you drive and look at the fall colors, we love to look at the trees. I assume you do too. They're very vibrant this year for all the good rain. You look at the trees, you can get out a piece of paper and you take a crayon and you color it. You might make it look as good, but God makes those colors through processes that blow I don't know how, through the photosynthesis and the tree going into hibernation and all these things to paint. This is what God has done. That God is worthy of worship. That God who endured mankind's rebellion and doesn't completely wipe sinners off the face of His glorious creation. Here we are besmirching all of God's beauty with our sinfulness, with our wickedness. Think of all the atrocities that have been in our news this week. Think of these horrible things going on. Yet God in His mercy has allowed sinful man to remain on this beautiful creation that he's made. That God who is that merciful, that enduring of our sinfulness is worth valuing. That God who in his mercy and out of no obligation of his own sets in motion a plan to rescue a people for himself who will be brought back into full fellowship with him, that God is worth glorifying. That God is worth valuing. That God who accomplishes that redemption by sending Jesus Christ through the work of His own hands, sending His Son to take God's justice upon Himself so that sinners could be freely forgiven by His grace, that the God who created everything and allows sinful man to exist doesn't wipe him out, but then not only that, sends His Son down to rescue sinners so they might be in full fellowship with Him again. That God is worth valuing That God is worth glorifying. That God who conquered death, the foe that none of us will escape should Jesus tarry. He beat it. Resurrected from the grave. That God is worth being shown as valuable. And that God who promised to one day return and consummate the salvation that has been accomplished by dwelling among us. He will come to be with us. So we will always be with the Lord. That God is worthy of all of our glory. Glory. So where... Does this leave us? A couple of things to consider. Make sure you are in this body. The church of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Repent and connect with the body of Christ. If God's glory is not your goal. If God's glory is not your goal. You should think about your standing in the church. In the authentic true church of Jesus Christ. If God's glory is not your goal, you are a false member of the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm here not to to shut everyone down, but to call repent. There is forgiveness. Christ has come to really do something to accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. If you are here, make sure you are in this church. When you do this, you are then centering your life around something far bigger than yourself. And at first, this may be disorienting, like you've been out in space, and all of a sudden you're getting reoccurated with gravity. Something has meaning in life. But it's absolutely necessary when you look at all the ups and downs of life. What happens when life goes up and down? What happens in your car when you go up and down and you have no seatbelt. What happens in life when you go up and down and there is nothing firm for you to stand on? Something firm like the church of Jesus Christ built for God's glory. We seek as a church God's glorification above all else for this simple reason. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. God is worthy of it. And may He be praised and honored and adored and obeyed in this place above all else. Let's pray. Father, Help us in this place. We desire, I desire, to lift high your name. Not to make you glorious, but in recognition that you are the God of all glory. You are the God worthy of all praise. You are the God who has rescued us. And Father, I pray for every set of eyes, every heart in this place. That we would see through the folly of my preaching. That we would see through the folly of the preaching. The immense beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that you have worked so that we can sing and take communion in this place this morning and praise you, not making you glorious, but recognizing you are the God worthy of all of our praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.